pick up in chapter 21, um, verse number five, kind of continuing this, this picture that we started a couple of weeks ago talking about new heavens and new earth. And again, the, the more I get into meeting with, uh, with people and trying to talk about new earth, the, you know, the more I just notice on people's faces almost this quizzical look like, uh, well, aren't we, what are you talking about new earth? Well, I mean, we just kind of go to heaven and we stay there. I'm like, no, no, we do not just go to heaven and stay there. Our, our lives are meant to be lived on earth, when God first built it, built the earth, he made it perfectly. He gave it to Adam and Eve. He, he was physically present on earth. Um, everything changes with the fall of man. And we have what we have today, our earth that is literally crying out, groaning, waiting for his return. And as his return, we have the resurrection. We also have the destruction of the current earth and the remaking of the new earth that we will dwell upon. And we've been looking at these different puzzle pieces as you jump around both the Old and the New Testament to give you an idea of the kind of bodies that we have and, and what does it mean to live on new earth. And we're going to continue that uh, today. So verse number five, we pick up. The one who is seated on the throne, um, as John now looks, uh, speaks these words, behold, I am making all things new. And last week, I, I kind of pointed to this verb for you, because uh, to me, it's a significant verb. Um, in, the, in the Hebrew, we have God who is speaking, and the verb is yomer. And it's the same verb that you, you use when you go back to Genesis with the original creation, right? Um, it's the word that, that causes scientists to kind of grumble. You know, how did the world come into being? Well, the fact of the matter is that whatever you believe, however you answer this question, how did the world come into being, that will expose your faith. It'll expose your faith. Because scientifically, there's no human that's on planet Earth today or that's ever lived or ever will live who can absolutely, scientifically, verifiably answer that question. Just, they can't. When I talk to my scientist friends, well, we, we think there was the, the Big Bang. You know, these, these planets, you know, came out of an explosion. I go, so you're saying that this piece of physical matter, this, this perfectly round s sphere called Earth, positioned perfectly within its universe, just move it a little this way or a little this way, and it either burns up or it freezes, that that all happened as a course of a Big Bang. Yes, it did. I'm like, okay, good. Now I have another question for you. Where did the physical matter come from that created this Big Bang? There's no answer for it. You know why? Because that's not science. And so I say, well, I'm just interested in hearing what you believe. What is your faith? Because I, I also have faith. I have faith that there was a God who existed before time began, before creation began. And, and when you ask me the question, how did physical matter get, get here? Yomer. God spoke and it came into being. God gathered into being all that exists today. So however you answer that question, you're going to reveal your faith. You're either, either going to believe blindly in something that just, okay, here's science, uh, but before science, here's my faith, or you're going to say, no, I believe that this is a word of God 
that started creation. And so you have this same word now um, in, the, in chapter 21 as God is now speaking, making all things new. The, the, the um, Greek word is really a pretty word. Uh, if you take the, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew yomer, God spoke, it's the word poieo. And the thing that I like about poieo is it's, our, it's the word that underlie our English term uh, poetry. And I think we left off with that last week. It's this idea that just, just like when you write a poem and you try to get everything balanced, the measures balanced, the words to rhyme, that God poetries into being all that exists. And for you and I, we look at the world and we look at how things function. And even in a broken state, there's a beautiful way in which God's poetry is seen every single day with the rising and the setting of the sun and the, uh, all, all of the operations of the uh, ecosphere around us. So here it is. I'm making all things new. Also, he says now, write this down. Write this down. He's speaking to John, right? Write this down. He's telling him, as you've, as you've heard this revelation, I want these words recorded. Why? Because they are trustworthy and they are true. Okay? Um, what do I base, what do I found my life upon? What is the truth that you're built upon? And what John is saying is, you, you can build your life upon all that I've shown you. And for me, that really means looking at who I am in light of all that is going to come. Uh, somewhere along the line, we've got to help um, our, our youngest people. I think of this, this weekend I got some grandpa time in. We had a wedding in Lincoln. One of our young ladies here uh, got married and uh, I was able to uh, help do that ceremony. So I got some grandpa time. I look at my little girls, right? And I think to myself, my goodness, you're going to get sucked into a world that is just filled up with all kinds of um, people, voices telling you, this is what's important, and here's what I want you to become, and here, here's, here's what matters in life. And you know what? They need the Bible. They need a word of God that says to them, do you know who you are? Your whole life. I mean, I'm holding this little tiny one in my arms. I'm like, your whole life is going to be like this. Done. If you live to be 100, it's no longer than that, right? And so our whole world comes along and says, oh my goodness, during that, however many years it is, you got to get as much as you can. I'm like, no, no. You got to give as much as you can. Not get as much as you can, give as much as you can. Because at the end of that, there's eternity. And eternity is what matters. And it's why I think Jesus would say, what, what does it profit you to gain the whole world? You know? And you lose your soul. What does that profit you? And so I just come back to these words again and again. Um, it makes the next words to me um, kind of noteworthy. He says, um, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the Beginning, and the End. When you look at those words, when he says, write this down, it is done. It's the same verb that you hear Jesus speak when he's on the cross. And he says, it's done, to die. 
okay? The difference is this. When Jesus cries out on the cross, it is done or it is paid for or it is finished, however you want to say that. What he's saying is, I have, through the cross, once and for all, overcome my enemy, the devil, and overcome your sin. I've paid for it, okay? Now, we look at Jesus on the cross and, and we look at the, the resurrection that follows the cross and we say, okay, look, so you've overcome the evil one. You, you've won the war. Why does it seem like he's still so active and alive, right? Well, because from the point of the cross until the time that Jesus returns, Jesus says that, that the enemy will still be at work in the world. Until when? Until I return. So as Christians, we always talk about living in the now and the not yet. I'm able to say, is, has God already overcome our enemy in our world today? Yes, absolutely. Well, why does it look like it? Because there's a not yet. There, there's, there's that final, it is done, that doesn't get spoken until here, until his return. Now, once and for all, the enemy is banished, death is banished, tears are banished. And so what he's saying is, I'm the alpha, I'm the one who started it all, and I am the omega, I'm the one who will end it all. I am the end of all things. And so on this new earth, what does he say? I will give to those who are thirsty from springs of water without payment. I kind of was looking at that um, again last night. We got home and I was looking through this section. I was thinking, you know, think about all of the thirst that's going on in our world today. Um, this week was a week where we got to see a lot of it, right? Turn on the television. And we've got some Nebraskans in Orlando with a little kiddo that uh, tragically gets lost um, to, was it an alligator or a crocodile? I don't, I don't know which. I guess, yeah, alligator. Yeah, I've had a lot of people during the week, they're like, oh, that, how could that happen? A lot of our, a lot of our world kind of lives in conditions where that's just a normal, that's actually a normal part of life, right? Um, I remember when I got to, knew the, got to know the Sudanese people in Lincoln, they would talk about an aunt or an uncle or a brother who goes out and they're washing their clothes in the river and uh, get snapped up and eaten. And uh, so now you get this picture on a newscast of a young family and they're going to return to Omaha area without their kiddo. And I think to myself, you talk about a group of people who will thirst for the rest of their life. What will they be thirsty for? There's no answer to it, is there? There's, no, there's nothing that you can just put on that takes that pain away. There's that constant, I should have been watching. We shouldn't have let our child do that. Then there's that anger. They should have done this and they should have. There's no answer to it. And God sees it and he says, you're thirsty, aren't you? I think about people who I met just in this past week. Okay? Um, individuals who in each of their own ways, thirsty. A mom and a dad standing over their daughter. She's going to go home to heaven probably this week. And they're rubbing her head and they're trying to get, get her comfortable. 
because she, she's in pain. Her lung has collapsed. She's got pneumonia on the other lung. She's got septus in her body. She's going to go home. And there's a mom and a dad, and they're thirsty for what? Take this pain away. Take this pain away from our little girl. You know, and for 28 years, they watched her grow up and struggle with life, and they're, they're thirsty. And Jesus sees that. There are stories in the Bible that when I read this word, to the thirsty, just jump into your mind. Can you think of some thirsty stories in the Bible? Um, a couple of them that come to my mind. I just thought we'd spend just a minute looking at them. Go over to Isaiah chapter 58. Here's this God who for centuries has been speaking this word, I will give to those who thirst. Look at Isaiah chapter 58, beginning with verse 5. You know, when, when, uh, whenever Isaiah speaks, he's always pointing forward to uh, that time in history where Israel will be set free from captivity. But he's pointing beyond that to uh, actually the new earth. In Isaiah chapter 58, beginning verse number 5, especially I want you to look at verse number 11. Just kind of look at this. He says, Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring homeless, uh, the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from his own flesh. This is the heart of a God who looks at us hungry, broken, naked, looking for answers in our world. And God says, this is my heart. Verse 11 says, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. He will make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden. A spring of water, whose waters do not fail. This is the God that we follow, who is looking at the different thirsts that fill up our life. Go over to John chapter 4. This is the uh, gospel account. I'm sure you'll be familiar with this. Begin verse 10. So a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I'll tell you why that story hits me this week is... You guys remember who this woman was, right? Why she was coming to the well, when she came to the well? 
She's a woman who sold her body. Right? She's a sinner. Notice that Jesus goes out to her and offers her living water. Okay? This week, we've been asking ourselves a question as Christians, at least I have. What's the right response? Okay? Because we see this news come to us from Orlando, and it's horrible news. Somebody who's been deceived, acting on behalf of the beast, walks into a gay and lesbian and transgender um, dance hall and shoots up. How many people ended up getting killed? Like 50, like close to 50 people die. And I'm like, my goodness. And so we've kind of got this question on our hands, all right? What do you, what, how does a Christian respond to that? Because on the one hand, we've got a group of people who are what? They're kind of living in a way that's not so good, right? Their whole lifestyle represents a stepping aside from, a stepping away from Jesus. Where, where would Jesus go? Would Jesus go into that mess? Absolutely he would, wouldn't he? Um, I'm kind of I'm kind of glad that you know this week um, uh, Mo says the comfort dog is our comfort dog is going to get deployed into Orlando. I wouldn't mind just going because you walk into that mess, and who you meet are broken, thirsty people. Listen, some of them are ready for a drink, and some of them are not. I always ask myself the question in John chapter 4, was the woman ready for the drink? You know, she's not initially, is she? And Jesus, she sees him and he says, would you give me a drink? And her first response is what? Defensive. Push you away. Okay. I kind of think a lot of people in our world today, that's their first response to us as Christians. Oh, you're the judgmental ones. You're the ones who do that. That's why you have an opportunity to go into something like this. You go in and guess what you do? You just serve people. You don't preach to them. You don't tell them, you know what, you better do it up. Nope. You go and you serve people. You know what God will do as you serve people? He'll open those doors. It's exactly what he does in John chapter 4. This woman's initial response is not, oh, good, hey, yes, I'm very thirsty. It's, who are you? And who are you to tell me anything? You know what? You're, you're one of those Jews, and you have nothing to do with us. Book after book after book after book that you read. They love Jesus, but not the church, right? It's a book title, okay? Um, it's our world. That's how they view us. You guys are judgmental. You, Jesus, you're asking me for a drink of water. You're a Jew. I want nothing to do with you. And Jesus does what? All of a sudden, he just touches a part of her that she never expected to be touched. You know what? I think, you're, I think you're thirsty, but, but not for that water. I think you're thirsty for something deeper than that. Living water. Here's what I've discovered as you work amongst broken people in our world today, including gays and lesbians and transgenders. My goodness gracious. I, we, we had one in my high school class, um, transgender. He um, was a kind of an unremarkable guy. Uh, I didn't really, I mean, I knew who he was, and he was kind of in the, in, into the arts, the drama. For our 10th year, um, you know, high school reunion, I, I, I've not been back to one of my high school reunions. I don't even know what year it is now. 
like the 50th or 60th year or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. Might be. I don't know. I've not been back. But anyway, I, got, I started getting all these um, calls. Man, you should have been here for the 10th anniversary. I'm like, why? Because he became a she. And I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding that guy? And they're like, yeah, that guy became a she. And then this one guy goes, and here's the bad news. She's kind of pretty. <laughs> and I'm like, seriously, that does not sound right. She became a Las Vegas showgirl and won like the showgirl of the year three years running in Las Vegas until they found out that she was a he and they stripped her, him, of the titles that she, he had, and he killed himself. He's dead. And I've always thought, you know what? Um, a lot of times people wear their pain on their outside, you know. And so um, when I meet somebody who, who you know, looks different, if, I'm, if I meet a transgender person, my first response is not to jump on the way they look or what's wrong. It's what's going on inside that person. Jesus sees inside of us. He's looking at this woman. He's like, you know what? You're thirsty, aren't you? I don't think you want this water here. What I think you want is water that gives life. And all of a sudden, her whole attitude, everything changes. I'm thirsty. That's the water that I'm thirsty for. And I really think... Um, you know, before we leave here today, we'll pray over Eddie and the work there. Because you go into a situation like Orlando, and what should our response be? You go and you serve. And, and you let God open those doors. And all of a sudden, you're talking to a thirsty person. And if they're not thirsty, you know what? You serve them anyway, and you move on. Because they're not ready yet. They're not ready for that living water. Some people are not. They just shut the door, and they're like, you know what? Get away from me. Okay, I will. But I guarantee you and promise you that the spirit who goes ahead of us is working, working, working. And you know, all he wants for us is to have an eternity where he's giving us water that lasts forever. Water that doesn't run out. And that's what he's pointing to here. He's saying, this is the kind of God I am. He's not a God who wants hard things for us. He's the God who comes to take tears away, to take pain away, to reach to those deep places inside of us where we're broken. And I'll tell you what, the, water, the world has no water for it. You know, all the, all the little vigils and stuff that the world does, how's that going to help you in eternity? And so all of a sudden, what we get to come in with is, is a healing word that comes from Jesus Christ that says, you're thirsty for something that's much deeper than anything the world can give you. It's the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and it transforms you. It turns your life around. It gives you a new path to walk on. And I really hear that when I listen to these words here. Is this one seated on the throne. He's crying out. He's saying, I'm the beginning. I'm the one who started it all. I made it perfectly. It worked just beautifully. And then sin came in. What does it do? It wrecks things. And we get ourselves stuck in sins. And it messes our lives up. And he says, I'm the beginning and I'm the end. I can end that. It is done. I can put it to rest. I can change that. If you will only... If you'll only drink this living water to the one who's thirsty, I will give to him water from the living springs. And he gives it, don't miss these words, without payment. Did you notice those words? You don't earn it. You don't say, oh, you know what, if, you're good, if you'll change your life, 
you know, and make everything right in your life. Now he'll give you that water. No. He comes while we're sinners and offers us the water. And as we receive that water, it begins to change us. And he gives it to us in grace without payment. You can't buy this water, the water that Jesus Christ gives. Okay. Look at these next words with me. The one who conquers. I'm just kind of hyped up a little bit today because I just am thinking about this week upcoming. Let's just pray right now over it. Lord God. This has been a this has been a hard week for our country and for churches around our country. We know that uh, people living in, in a lifestyle of sin, they, they just got brokenness in them. And Lord, the world doesn't have any water. It's flat out of it. But you do. And Lord God, I just want to pray over um, all, all of those who are deployed into Orlando to bring living water. And I just pray over Eddie in this opportunity. We don't know how you'll use our team, but use them. Open those doors for those who are thirsty and fill them up with living water. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for doing that for just a minute. Look at verse number seven. He says, um, who will have this? Who will have this water of life? To the one who conquers, you will have this heritage. And um, really, when you hear that word, to the one who conquers, um, immediately flashes into my mind the words of uh, Paul in Romans chapter 8 where he talks about who are we? We are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. Um, it, just flip over there for just a minute. I'm going to take you to Romans a couple of times. Um, Romans 8, beginning with verse 33. I have these words marked in my Bible because... Um, God led them, led these words to me um, on a Christmas, not quite Christmas Eve day, but just about Christmas Eve day, a number of years ago. And um, somebody had just grabbed me by the arm and said, Pastor, there's a young man that you need to talk to. And uh, we were out in a park. We were doing a uh, celebration for people who... Um, they don't really go to church. And uh, this young man, I walked up to him, and he, he was going to, he told me who he was, what he was doing, and he says, I, I want to kill myself. I just want to kill myself. And I thought, you know, what are some words from God that um, are needed? Well, I listened to him, and he, was so, he just felt so shame-filled in his life. His, his life was... Um, not a good life. And so these words just came to me, and, and, and just kind of look at them with me. Beginning verse um, 33 and following. Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? This young man, his father was his condemner. And um, 
You know, on Father's Day, I think about how many kids um, have never really had their dad hold them in their arms and tell them, I love you, or tell them, I care about you. Um, this young man did not. His dad condemned him on a daily basis. And so I just read him these words, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us? Who will separate you from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? About famine or nakedness? What about danger or sword? It's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither life, life nor death, not angels, not rulers, not things present nor things to come, not powers, not heights, nor depths, nothing in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think those words are for all of us as we kind of wrestle our way through this world. You have a dad who says this, this is how much I love you. Not death, not sword, not pestilence, not tribulation, not heights, not depths, not angels, not even fallen ones can separate you from my Lord. You are more than conquerors. And that's really what, what um, John is hearing here from the throne is the one who conquers, they will be my inheritors, my inheritors of this new land that I will give you. It closes out verse number seven. He says, I will be his God and he will be my son. I will be his God and he will be my son. And now the words that really challenge us, uh, even here in our city. Verse eight, but as for cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Okay? Don't misread this, by the way. Um, sometimes it's easy for us to read words like this and separate ourselves from them. Okay? We're like, well, murderers, I'm not a murderer. You're not? Have you read scripture? Yeah, you are. Sexually immoral. I'm not sexually immoral. You're not? Are you a guy? <laughs> yeah, you've been down that road. Sorcerers. Well, certainly I'm not a sorcerer. <laughs> I'm at least not a sorcerer. Probably, I don't know, maybe there's a few sorcerers in here. Um, idolaters? No, no, I'm definitely, definitely not an idolater. Really? I imagine we could find a few idols in every one of our lives. And liars, well, I've never told a lie. Whoops. <laughs> there went one. See what I mean? It doesn't really take that long. You see what happens is we start off and we read that and we're like, as for those murderers, yeah, get them. Secular immoral, smack them. Sorcerers, oh yeah, get the sorcerers real good. Idolaters, uh-huh, burn them up. And we get to that end, we're like, oh good, the Lord's going to burn them all up until we stop and we go, that's me? 
So what's the difference? Well, the difference is these are people who are stuck in their sin and never trust Jesus Christ. They never conquer because they try to conquer in their own power and strength. And they're left outside of the grace of God. And what he's saying to us is, in our city today, in our families today, in our midst today, are a lot of people who are right there. Right? They're right there. And God is calling us to do what? Bring living water to these people. Because apart from that, we go to the second death. The first death is the easy one. It's a physical death. The second death is the hard one because guess what? The second death is the death of eternity and it is the separation from Jesus Christ for the rest of eternity. And it's why, it's why God says to the church, today is the day, the hour is today to go out with my living water into the world. All right. One more thing I want to make sure I get to today because it's significant. Go to this next section, the New Jerusalem. So John has now heard all this. He says, okay, I, I get this. All right, I see, what's I see what's coming, this new earth. Remember at the very beginning of this, this chapter, he says, when the new earth happens, he sees the new Jerusalem descending down upon the new earth, right? That's, um, that's like the very second verse. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride. The significance of this next section is, it starts to answer the question, what, what is that new Jerusalem? What or who is that new Jerusalem? So it always takes angels to answer the question. Verse number nine says, then came one of those seven angels. He was one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me. All right, so John is picturing this new holy Jerusalem coming down, and now this angel comes to him to answer the question, what is that? What, what, who is that, that new Jerusalem? And here's what he says to him. Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Okay? So that picture that you have of the new Jerusalem coming down is very much like a bride walking down an aisle towards the groom. And now, who is that? So verse 10 says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Had a great high wall, 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. The wall of the city, 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Okay. So you have both the Old and the New Testament represented here. The whole of the New Jerusalem is wrapped up in one world. Who, one word. Who is this? This is Israel. Now, tougher question. What is Israel? Answer. Not easy. Go to Romans chapter 11.
I want to do this with you because a lot of a lot of books that you read when you when you get to the question of of Israel pretty much miss the point. A lot of books that you read pretty much miss the point. One of the questions that gets asked all the time in, in eschatological or end time studies and circles is, is this question, what happens to the Jews? What happens to the Jews, right? And you've got a lot of teachers out there, and you'll, you, you watch, if you watch much of Revelation uh, on television, a lot of teachers out there saying what? Well, the Jews will be restored, and the Jews will be on the new earth. And uh, they, in fact, will have a place of prominence because that is what Israel is. I always say, well, you've, you've kind of missed the point. You've, you've missed the whole essence of what God calls Israel or this new Jerusalem that's coming down. And there's no better place to answer this question than right here in Romans chapter 11. Here Paul is asking one of the hardest questions of his life. Look, look at how this begins. He says, I ask, has God rejected his people? Right? Remember, Paul is a Jew. And remember, his heart for the Jews caused him at one point to say, I would even give up my own salvation if the Jews would come to believe. So here he's saying, the, he's asking the question, did, did God reject them? And his answer is this, by no means. He says, for I myself am an Israelite. I'm a descendant from Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people who he foreknew. I mean, why did God choose Israel out of all the people groups in the world to be his people? Not based on what they did, but on his foreknowledge. He says, I knew you before you knew me, and I've made you my own. He says, do you not, want, do you not know what scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone and left, and they seek my life. What was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Okay? Kind of takes you back to that Old Testament story where you have Elijah convinced that he's the only single person on planet Earth that still trusts and believes in, in, in God, right? And God reminded Elijah, no, you're not. I have set aside for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Now, look at this. This is important. So too, at the present time, I've got these words underlined in my book, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened as it is written. And now you have two quotes. Okay? What's he saying there? Probably one of the, the key underlying teachings of the Old Testament comes around this idea of remnant. Remnant means what? A torn off piece that is set aside by God for his purposes. And here's what you discover about Israel. Is that... In Israel, at the time that Paul writes these words, he says there's a remnant of people, there's a small group of people who are, guess what, they are Messianic Jews. They've come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
They trust him. They're believers. And God would say, that's my Israel. That's my Israel. The rest of Israel, who continued to hold on to what? Tradition and to the idea that it's by our works that we're saved. Well, Paul says God goes on to actually harden their hearts, right? Will they be saved in the end? No. Why? They're apart from him. They're not part of the remnant. They're not part of the saved. Okay. So who is Israel today? Well, go to verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. It's kind of interesting that when God took the gospel, and uh, you remember through Peter for the first time out into the houses of Gentiles, and then through Paul, what, did the Jew, what was the Jews' response? How dare you take what belongs to us to the house of the Gentiles? God says, I'm taking it to the house of the Gentiles. Why? To make Israel jealous. To have Israel come back to me. That's why in the New Testament, the primary work of the apostles in their earliest days was what? Amongst the Jews. To try to bring them back and to say, guess what? We've missed it. All along we've missed it. Jesus is the Messiah. Trust in him. Believe in him. And now that is the true Israel. So when people say to me, who is Israel? Who is this Israel, this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven that's being described in the Revelation? It's all those people in the Old Testament, all those people in the New Testament period up to Jesus' second return who have what? Trusted in the blood of Jesus Christ for salvation. Okay. Never in the Bible does it say that God's just going to automatically restore the Jews because they're Jews. Nowhere. It says that there's a remnant of the Jews who do come to trust in Jesus and they, like the, like the Gentiles, will also be on new earth. Now, one last thought for you before we close for the day. It's kind of interesting. This is interesting to me. Kind of in history, if you look at history, that God... God took, took Israel, took the gospel and brought it over here to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles could do what? Make Israel jealous, hungry for what they had. Okay? Now, I'm not, I'm not going to say this in an absolute way, but I think about this a lot. America as a nation has always thought of itself as what? A Christian nation, right? We're the one, we, we have this gospel. Um, is it possible that sometimes God takes that over here so that another group of people can make this group of people hungry? Where is Christianity growing in our world today? Not America. Where is it growing? Africa. China. Who's sending more and more and more missionaries to America. Uh-huh. These countries are sending a lot of missionaries right here. We have become, I believe now it's like the second largest receiving country in the world of missionaries from other countries. Because the world is able to step back and look at America and say, they are godless. They are without God. 
and they need to know Jesus Christ, and they are coming, coming, coming. We're here. This is our backyard. And I really do believe that it's this, this time in life where God would say to us, the, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, that is, that is the Israel. Those are those who trust in Jesus Christ. And the call is like never before to bring that water of life even into our very backyard. Let's close there for the day, Lord.